Um, I'll be real honest with you all and say that this whole series on the church is kind of difficult for me to prepare for because, well, there's two reasons. I'm not real experienced at topical sermon preparation. Um, The only really topical teaching I've done is with youth, and they are pretty forgiving and have extremely short attention spans. So without involving you all in some games, um, getting my thoughts organized in a way that is not intensely boring um, and communicating what the scriptures have to say about the life of the church Um, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, I'm working full time. So all that to say, be a little merciful to me. I'm going to do my best to make this engaging and interesting. And uh, if I fail, let me know and I'll do something different next week. Uh, If I succeed, don't say anything. All right. Because you know what will happen. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 25, says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So last week, we saw who makes up the church. We looked at Ephesians 2, and uh, I made the case that what God is saying through Paul when he says he, pre- he came and preached peace to those of you who are near and those of you who are far, is that we, we come into this um, assembly from all kinds of different walks of life. There are those who were... Uh, extremely far away from the things of God and were brought into peace with Christ through the gospel. And there were those who kind of grew up in church and had less of a dramatic conversion experience. But the thing that makes us all the same is that we're all saved by the same blood, the same faith, the same scriptures, the same God, the same Jesus. We have that in common. And so we're we're all gathered into this one little local expression of what the Bible calls the body of Christ. And what we saw in Ephesians 2 was we are members of the household of God and that we are the dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit, right? So that was last week. I want to share some other verses with you along the lines of membership, because if we understand what constitutes the church, the dwelling place of God is not a building, but people, then our attention should move from the building to the people and how we relate to one another, right? So here's some, just some other passages. You can scribble them down in your margin or on your notes since we don't do bulletins around here, um, which that was not a dig. That's a good thing. 
waste of paper. Um, Romans 12, verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I'm going to read that again so that you can listen. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So whatever our status and role in the context of the local community of faith, God gave us the gifts that he wanted us to have and the, the means to express them, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we make up the, the physical expression of the body of Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians 2, 19, we saw last week. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When Paul uses this word, and he uses it in almost every epistle, members, which in the Greek is melos or melos, he's talking about like an appendage, like a part of a physical body, because he views the church as a living, breathing organism. It's not a thing. It's not a club. It's one whole made up of many parts. So that's always the terms that he puts it in. We use member to describe those who are somehow, I'll put somehow in air quotes, we use member to describe those who are somehow attached to the congregation. Right? So we would say, oh, my parents are a member. If you're, if you're Carrie Smith, you'd say, my parents are a member of St. Joseph Church down on the other end of Main Street, right? That's where they, yeah. So what do we mean when we say that, though? Did, is, did, uh, we don't have membership here yet. We don't really, in my opinion, we don't really have a church here yet in the, in the most formal sense of the word. So how do you belong to this? Well, right now you just show up. And you like do stuff that you see needs to be done. So uh, Gail and Kim toted in a bunch of trays of, uh, I haven't even looked. Is it cinnamon rolls? Yeah, cinnamon rolls. So their contribution to our little expression of the body of Christ is type 2 diabetes. (laughs) Everybody's got to do their part. (laughs) I want to make the point that the first thing that makes somebody a member, and the most important thing that makes somebody a member is what we talked about last week. What we said, what I said last week is, if Christ came, and that's what the scripture said in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1, in Hebrews, where it was Colossians 3, and Hebrews 1, is that Jesus came and preached peace, and then he reconciled lost sinners to himself, and because we're all reconciled to Jesus, we are then members with one another, it must therefore stand that in order to be, to be a member of a church, you have to be someone who believes in Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's step one. And I snuck that in without even mentioning it last week. It's been established. It's too late to disagree. If you weren't here, you missed the vote. All right. Now, that being said, we need to look at 
more practically speaking, how this works, how us interacting with one another works and, and set the table, so to speak, for um, what, what we might in a few months end up seeing as like a membership agreement or a membership covenant, or a statement of faith that we all give our agreement to in order to be part of this membership. Like, I don't know how it's going to work. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but we need to set the table for that event. So looking at verse 25 of of, uh, Ephesians 4, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And this is the part I want to focus on, the next part. For, look right at it, For we are members of one another. That is critical. Members of one another has to mean something more than we wear the same color or we have a secret handshake or we know the secret passcode to get in. Members of one another is is greater than the idea of a club. Right? The Boy Scouts like say an oath or what they used to. I, know, I was never a boy scout, but there's like a boy scout oath and you hold your hand a certain way and give the boy that does that it. So pinky to thumb. And then you say the boy scout oath. Um, if you were ever part of Awana, you have the Awana pledge, you know, and then you wear the Awana uniform, which I think is now just a vest or maybe a sash or something. I don't know. This is more than that. Because Boy Scouts are not members of one another. We are, if, if we're a church. We are members of one another. That has to mean something. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, why don't we all go there and look so you know I'm not making this up. 1 Corinthians 12, but keep your finger in Ephesians 4 because eventually we'll come back. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. It says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I have broken both of my pinky toes multiple times, both of them multiple times, because I'd like to roll barefoot, right? And you pay the price for that stupidity as you enter your 40s. Part of the price that I've paid is both of my pinky toes, instead of being, you know, with like the toenail facing up, is now the toenail kind of faces (laughs) off that direction at a 45 degree angle. When you break your pinky toe, you find out how meaningful your pinky toe is to the rest of your body. Because when you try to walk, you have to like walk on the inside of your foot, like you're skating, like you're pushing off all the time. And then what happens as a result is your gait has changed. So then you start using muscles more that you wouldn't normally use. You start straining stuff. Your back starts to hurt. Like there are consequences to breaking your pinky toe, right? So when the, the, the Holy Spirit says the eyes can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, what we need to picture is this idea that everything about our body is symbiotic, 
means you cannot just do without somebody else who's a member of the church. But I have seen this, and I've seen it play out ad nauseum, where somebody in the body has a problem with somebody else in the body, and the solution is, I'll just sit somewhere else in church. I just won't talk to them. I just won't have anything to do with them because I don't need them. Is that going to work? Can the eye say to the hand, I don't have any need of you? Can the head say to the feet, I don't have any need of you? Who established this membership according to 1 Corinthians 12? Verse 18. Does it say, as it is, the elders of the church arranged the members in the body? No. Does it say all the men got together? No. Does it say all the women who like to wear the pants in the family? No. It says God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. What are we to make of folks in the church who think that they have no need of someone else in the church? What kind of church do you really have if you have people who refuse to talk to or work alongside other people in the church? How's that work? Or, this is my favorite, what if I get up here on a Sunday and start preaching passive-aggressively, right? And everybody here knows it's directed at somebody because everybody here knows what's really going on behind the scenes. And I'm just up here making myself a martyr during my time when I'm supposed to be sharing the word of God. Like, how's that going to work out for us? It's not, right? That's, that was an easy one. Everybody's like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> we were struggling a little bit a minute ago when I said, what if there's somebody here you don't particularly like and you don't want to particularly associate with? But folks, this is real. This really happened. It's going, look at me. It's going to happen here. And it may not just be me that offends you. It may be, it may be the, the, the lady who's propagating type 2 diabetes on us. <laughs> it may be her. It may be Kyle. Kyle might offend you. Kyle's like, I probably already did. <laughs> it's very in touch with reality. can we say we have no need of one another? No. No, it's not an option, right? So, what are we going to do if we do offend one another? Now, this is different. Can the eye say, the hand offended me? The hand sinned against me? Can that happen? Can the hand sin against the eye? Yeah, it happens all the time. You ever poke yourself in your own eye? Not, I mean, in my adult life, I don't think I have, but I remember as a kid, like, constantly, like, poking myself in the eye on accident. Yeah, it can happen. So we can injure one another, incidentally, or even, God forbid, on purpose, in, in like, a spiteful, nasty way. It can happen. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Matthew 18 15 through 17 lays that out for us. And we looked at this two or three weeks ago. If your brother sins against you or your sister, go and tell him his fault in private between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So that's step one. The eye or the hand or, yeah, the hand of, 
hurt me or offended me or sinned against me. Okay, well, I, you need to go talk to the hand about that and figure it out, like work it out, confront the hand, be like, listen, if you're going to poke me, at least trim your nails. This isn't working for me. If the hand is like too bad, I'm going to keep poking you in the eye. Well, go get the other hand. And both of you go together and talk to the, talk to the hand and say, this isn't working. This is sinful. This is, God doesn't like this. This is hurting the body. And if the other hand is, and of course, it's got to be the left hand, right? That's doing the thing wrong. If the hand still won't repent, then you need to go to the leadership of the body and say, look, we've tried. The hand just doesn't care. He keeps offending. He keeps injuring. And if that doesn't work, then you need to tell it to the church. That's what Matthew 18, 15 through 17 lays out. Okay. What I said, I think it was three weeks ago, was I don't think you have to do that. I mean, I dared to suggest that maybe once the eye is done watering, it can just get over it because sometimes things happen and the hand is a sinner just like the eye. And we don't have to constantly keep a list of all of everybody's offenses against us. Maybe we can just let it go. By the way, I intend to go on to our sermon audio page and edit the title of that sermon because it wasn't until after I titled it Let It Go that I realized... (laughs) what that looks like. We'll, we're going to be fixing that. Is shunning anywhere in the biblical instruction for dealing with members who are in conflict? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is where we get tripped up. So you tell it to the church, and then the church says, fine, we will let this person be to us as a Gentile and a tax collector. And some people conclude that means you shun them. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about a situation where you've got a guy who's doing something like pretty nasty and the church needs to discipline him over it. And Paul says, you need to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he might be taught not to blaspheme. Stop embracing this sinner. In other places, he says, reject a factious man after one or two reproofs. There are passages in scripture which give us license to say, you know what, that person we shouldn't even be talking to. But this is not a situation where somebody is purposely undermining the cause of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. This is a situation where you're crossed up with somebody because they were inconsiderate or selfish or stupid and you can't let it go. You need to work it out. They're unwilling. The church decides, well, they don't want to apologize. They don't want to take responsibility for their, for their sins. So we're going to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. And what that means is we need to proclaim the gospel to them robustly with enthusiasm. We need to share with them their need for a savior because if you are in Christ, you cannot not care how you've made somebody else feel. That's what the Bible's telling us. It is a rare thing where the church should be like, you know what, you're not welcome here anymore. And I'll outline a scenario where I think that should happen. If we constitute and we're a church and we have a membership and somebody rolls in and they join with us and then we find out they're preying on the women here. Yeah, they need to go. We'll set up some parameters, some guidelines for them to conduct themselves in a way that's healthy. But if they're not willing to do it, they can bounce. 
Those situations might happen, but by and large, wouldn't we agree that's pretty rare? So why is it we're so quick to kind of like, just between us and somebody else, excommunicate them? What's wrong with our hearts that we conduct ourselves like that? Shunning is not in the biblical instruction. I think the problem is, boy, that rain is nice. I think the problem is everybody's getting sleepy, right? (laughs) We're with you, James. We promise. I think the problem is we relate to one another in contractual terms instead of in covenant terms. So let's look at the one another's real quick. And if you don't make this mistake, if you ever search your concordance for all the times one another occurs just in the New Testament, I think it's like 100 something. I think it's 350 something in the entire scripture. And I heard a guy teaching on this once and he goes, 353 times the Bible addresses one another's. Well, sometimes it's like, and then the elders consulted with one another and some narrative thing happened. So there's about 52, 53 one another passages in the New Testament where the Bible is directing us to interact with one another in a certain way. I'm just going to run through these real quick while you all listen and enjoy it. Oh, first of all, we are, according to Ephesians 4.25, members of? Let's do that better. We are members of? Very good. Except for the middle section here. I I think we might be hurt over some diabetes comments. (laughs) We'll talk about that after. Mark 9, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Romans 12 The apostle writes and says, love one another. Romans 14, do not judge one another and do not put stumbling blocks before one another. Romans 15, live in harmony with one another and welcome one another. Romans 16, greet one another. That's that's a directive. It doesn't say except for the person you don't like when they come in on Sunday. Snub them. It's not in there. It says, greet one another. 1 Corinthians 12, care for one another. 2 Corinthians 13, comfort one another. Agree with one another. Galatians 5, through love, serve one another. Do not devour one another. Do not provoke one another. Do not envy one another. That's all in Galatians 5. Ephesians 4, bear with one another. And now we're all like, amen. That's one I can get behind. Bear with one another. I'm doing it, Pastor. Right now, we're bearing with you. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. That's all Ephesians 4. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, not because I'm awesome, but because he is. Well, that should make it a little easier to move out of contract into covenant. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Admonish one another in wisdom and thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 3. Pray that the Lord would increase your love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 4. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5. Build one another up. Seek to do good for one another. If Hebrews 3. Exhort one another. Hebrews 10, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Encourage one another as the day of salvation draws near. James 4, do not speak evil against one another. James 5, listen, do not grumble against one another and confess your sins to one another. 
First Peter 1, we're almost done. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First Peter 4, keep on loving one another earnestly. So don't just do it once. It's an ongoing thing. Keep on loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another with your gifts. First Peter 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Greet one another with love. First John 3 and 4, all about love one another. Okay, so in order for all of these one another things to happen, we cannot relate to one another. In, shh, we cannot relate to one another in contractual terms. Love one another because you're members of one another. Now, uh, we live in a culture where love, like the word love, has kind of lost a little bit of its its specific meaning. Okay, because we're commanded to love one another, but I bet somebody this morning loved those cinnamon rolls. So we've devalued the word a little bit, right? Love doesn't mean like, oh man, I, well, not anymore. I used to love the Huskers. They've broken my heart too many times. I love music. I love this artist. I love my dog. Like we can't mean the same thing when we talk about love one another as when we say we love enchiladas, right? It's got to mean something different. So when we, when we talk about the word love and we want to define it, I think the best way to define it is precisely the way Jesus defines it. And most of you already know this. For those of you who don't, this is like, I have three sermons. You're probably figuring this out. This is the third one that you haven't heard yet, okay? Love is best defined the way Jesus defined it. How did Jesus define love? Well, he acted decisively and practically. You have a sin problem which separated you from God, amen? We all together on that. You have a sin problem that separated you from God. And Jesus acted and took the initiative and came into the midst of the mess and the horror of your sin in order to redeem you back to God the Father. That's what Jesus did. That was his expression of love. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? Look right at me. Why did he do that? Because he felt compassion for you. He felt something for you. So love, I think so far, we can see is an act, not an emotion. It's an act of the will. Jesus did something because he felt something. So it's an act of the will accompanied by emotion. What exactly did he do? He came and redeemed you out of the mess. So what was the end result of what Jesus did? Your benefit, your benefit was the end result of what Jesus did. So he acted. He didn't just talk about it. He did something. He did it with emotion because he felt compassion for you. And he did it for your benefit. And who did it cost? Himself. So love then must be an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do someone else good at your own expense. Love must be an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. You don't love your wife if you're just trying to get something from her. You don't love your husband if you're just manipulating him into doing what you want. 
And you don't love other people in the church if you're just putting up with them when they're pleasing to you. That's contractual. We're talking about covenant relationship. That is so much different than a contract. So why is it, if that's the definition of love, does marriage counseling so often sound like this? She nags me constantly about stuff that isn't that big of a deal. Well, he doesn't appreciate what I do for him. She doesn't appreciate how hard I work. I come home and I'm tired. But he doesn't appreciate how hard I'm working in this house with his kids. Why does it sound like this? Okay, fine. I'll hang up the shelves in the laundry room when I come home and dinner's actually ready. Do you think I'm making this up? No, I've heard this stuff. (laughs) Well, fine. I'll have dinner ready when he stops forgetting to hang his clothes up. She texts me about stupid stuff when I'm trying to work. He sits there watching YouTube while the kids are fighting and he doesn't engage. He never engages. I'm sick of it. This is what marriage counseling sounds like. Okay? And the reason that it sounds like that is because we're dealing with one another in terms of contract. So Grace will remember this because at her wedding, I talked about this. I said, we would be devastated if we came to a wedding and the pastor got up and he made his remarks and he gave his little devotion. And then he said, now it's time for the vows. And the bride and the groom each got out a clipboard and stood there negotiating the terms on which they'd love one another. We would be so discouraged by that. As long as you don't get over 100 pounds, babe. As long as you bring home 120K. All right, I'll agree to that. We'd be disgusted. Because a marriage is not about contract. It's about covenant. It's about, I promise, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. And some of you are living it right now. It's worse. It's poor. It's sick. And you're still there and you're still engaged and you're still doing things for that person because you promised. And that's how this is supposed to work. So you can't come in the door and go, oh, great, Jenny's here. I'll just sit with Audrey. You can't do that. It doesn't work, right? Right? But the same attitude comes to church. Ephesians 4.25 says we're members of one another. Does your hand have a contractual relationship with your eye? Does it? Hey, hand, I'll look out when you're cutting stuff as long as you never poke me again. No, that's not how it works. It just naturally works together. Your hands go where your eyes tell them it's safe to go. That's the way the body's supposed to work. 1 Corinthians 12, 24. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another as God had in composing the body, right? So then 26, he says, if one member suffers, we all know this, if one member suffers, All the members suffer with it. You can't just hurt one part of your body and like, oh, that's the only part that's aware of the injury. It doesn't work that way. So if one of us is hurt, all of us are hurt. If one of us is rejoicing, 
All of us are rejoicing. And this is kind of weird because there are those times where you are simultaneously rejoicing with one person at church and heartbroken with another. That's the way body life is supposed to work. That's the way God designed it. Jesus spent himself completely to save you from sin. Real quick, quick poll so that I can get you all back engaged. Did you deserve for Jesus to save you from sin? Are we not sure? Did you deserve? Did Jesus do that because you kind of earned it? No. Jesus washed you of your guilt, shame, and fear. Did you deserve that? Jesus washed you of your guilt, shame, and fear. Did you deserve that? No. What else did he do? Well, he deals with you patiently today. Do you deserve that? No. What else? Well, he does things when we don't deserve them because he promised. It's covenant. It's not contractual. How dare us take this relationship, which is covenantal, and turn this into a contractual one? That's not going to work. How does church membership work? It's a promise. It's a promise. I promise I will put up with you the same way he puts up with me. And I just need you to promise to put up with me the same way that Jesus puts up with you. Don't just interact with me based on what you think my merits are. Interact with me based on what you think his merits are. And I'll do the same thing. And then you know what happens? It's a little harder to stay mad at somebody much past after they do something stupid and hurtful. Unless it's real bad. Love one another. Act of the will. Accompanied by emotion. Designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. So spend of yourself to care for others. All right, so that's church membership. This is covenant relationship. And we deal with one another in terms of promise, not in terms of contract. So now let's look at this text and see if we can make sense of what it says. That was my intro. Ephesians 4, 25. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members of one another. So tell the truth. Okay? We all good with that? Tell the truth. Anybody here ever been lied to by somebody at church? Well, then that's it. I'm out. They didn't hold up their end of the deal. No, 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 no. It's covenant. Speak the truth. Next, be angry and do not sin. Okay, there you go. It's all right. In covenant with one another, it's okay to be upset. The God just gave you permission. Somebody here hurt you, it's okay. Be angry, but don't sin. What would be sin? Well, I think it would be sin to demand more from somebody else than God has demanded from you. I think that would be sin. So this goes back to the parable that Jesus shared in Matthew 18 about the servant who got forgiven 150 years worth of wages, turns around, walks out the door, finds a dude that owes him 20 bucks and starts choking him out. Let's not do that. You can be angry. But let me tell you a little secret. Righteous anger, look right at me, Righteous anger is not that much fun. So if you're mad and you're kind of enjoying it, it's probably not righteous. Righteous anger hurts. It sucks. 
27, do not give the devil an opportunity, okay? How might we give the devil an opportunity? Well, by sinning against one another, for starters, and then in response to somebody sinning against us, deciding to write their name down and erase it. That would give the devil an opportunity because he can come in the door the minute we're dysfunctional. It's not dysfunctional that we're going to hurt one another, incidentally. That's normal. That's functional because we're sinners. What's dysfunctional is when somebody hurts you incidentally and you start making a case and launch an investigation and try to take them out. The devil loves that stuff. Sit up at night thinking about what you're going to say to them. He loves that. Don't give the devil an opportunity. This isn't easy, is it? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal, give. Super easy. 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. So use your words to edify rather than destroy others to make yourself seem more impressive. 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'm sorry if you disagree with me, but I think what he's saying is it grieves the Holy Spirit when people who are supposed to be in covenant relationship are constantly bickering and arguing. I think that's what he's talking about. I think that grieves the Holy Spirit. So as we're constituting, we should be thinking about what does membership look like? It shouldn't look like grieving the Holy Spirit. 31, hey, If you haven't paid attention to anything else, I would just encourage you to pay attention to verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, just like God did towards you. All of it. Let it be put away from your heart. It (laughs) looks... This doesn't have to be somebody here. This could be somebody out there. That you have some kind of a historical injury from. If you are constantly nursing some age-old wound, brother or sister, you're the one with the problem. Put it away. Stop talking about it. Every time somebody asks you how you're doing, well, if you remember back in 2007, Bernice did this, that, or the other. Like, let it go. 32, and with this will be done. I just had to say that because Jude got up. I want to make him feel bad. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's how church membership works. Kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So what are we going to do? So massive oversight on my part. When we started this thing back in September here, I think I I kind of figured out from watching um, Austin 
that this, this community of faith did an invitation. Was that right? And, and I completely failed to even discuss it with you guys when I showed up here that I don't typically, not because I'm diametrically opposed to them. It's just I've never really done one. What I like to do is just periodically give everybody a minute to think about something, right? And if you, if you want to sit and pray in this minute or you want to make time to visit with me or Cecil or Lee or Matt or Kevin or Tim or um, Roy, like an older guy who can identify with what you're going through, that's great. I don't, I don't think anything magical happens like past the first row where you need to get up and come up here. But let's think for just a minute. Are we really about to try to do this together? With like gangrenous, festering wounds from the last joint? Or the last place we worked? Or the marriage that didn't work out? Or the parents that didn't love us very well? I don't think that's going to work. I think what we need, if we're going to be members of one another, is to start on the same footing. And the footing is this. You have been forgiven more than anyone has ever sinned against you. So let's deal with one another accordingly. If you need to spend a few minutes like just breathing in that space so you can come out of the the ashes and the refuse of whatever you've been dealing with for however long you've been dealing with it, then take a few minutes and do that. Jesus wants us to flourish, not languish. We didn't get called out of darkness into slightly less darkness. We got called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's make sure we look like it as we are members of one another. Amen? Let me pray.